eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED lights, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, show number 10. Anytime we're going into an, an uncharted territory, we're going to test. We're going to test and test and test, and we're going to validate whether this this uh, opportunity is actually going to present itself, whether it's actually going to work, and then we'll scale accordingly. Welcome to a real-world MBA from the School of Hard Knocks, where entrepreneurs reveal what it really takes to make it. Whether you're already in business or you're on your way there, this show is for you. This is Bigger Pockets Business. Hey there, everybody. It is Jay Scott here today with my very pink-looking wife, Miss Carol Scott. How are you doing today, Pinky? I... Pinky McPinkerson at your service. I have to tell you the coolest thing that happened yesterday. So I was driving the boys back through the neighborhood and there's this lemonade stand. And so of course I've got to stop and get the lemonade like you do. And there's a kindergartner and a second grader. And they're telling me about their different kinds of lemonade. And of course I buy the lemonade and it's 50 cents. Well, I give them the 50 cents and they hand me, uh, you can't see this listeners, but in the video, I'm holding up this sheet of paper. Okay. Essentially, here's what this piece of paper says. Need some help? Let Casey Hudson know. We do all sorts of jobs and would be happy to help you with anything you need us to do. We offer dog walking, watering plants, getting mail, raking leaves, shoveling snow, car washes, taking out the trash so, and recycling. So these basically kids, they're building a funnel with their lemonade stand. Elementary school kids are building a funnel. Are you kidding me? These kids are brilliant. Next thing I know, they put a website on there, right? So I go onto the website and I'm like, wait a minute, I recognize that girl. And you know what? I realized, do you remember last year when I went into fifth grade and did a volunteer session on how to make money over the summer, how to teach kids entrepreneurialism? Yeah, that was one of the girls from one of my classes is one of the girls that's on the website and funneled me. <laughs> so I was like, okay, look what I just created. Looks like you have a, a success story from fifth grade. I guess so. Gotta love when the 12-year-olds are owning it. That is awesome. So there you go. There's your first tip of the day, listeners. If you have kids and they set up their lemonade stand, make sure they are co-marketing with a bunch of other kid business owners and handing out uh, marketing flyers along with their lemonade to drive business to their friends and, uh, and other kids at school. Okay, let's jump into our show. Today, we are talking with Peter Awid, the co-founder of a company called Mission Meats. Mission Meats produces all natural meat snacks, and they do it all while giving back to their community. Peter has some great tips for us today. He's going to tell us about how we can test our products without spending a whole lot of money. We're going to talk about partnerships, and Peter's going to tell us all about how he had a really, really bad partnership, but that eventually led to him having a having found a really, really great partner who he's now working with at Mission Meets. And he's going to give us some great tips for doing market research and getting customer feedback at absolutely no cost to you. He'll also tell us about how he built Mission Meets into a seven-figure business with just one employee 
and a handful of contractors. Finally, I definitely recommend listening to the end of this one. We get into how Peter teaches his young kids all about entrepreneurship. We have a really great discussion there. Now, without any further ado, let's bring in Peter Awood. Welcome to the show, Mr. Peter Awood. How you doing, Peter? Doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Hey, Peter. Hey, Carol. How are you? Awesome. So, Peter, this is this is an honor to get to talk to you today. Big fan of Mission Meets. I was actually a fan of a podcast you did a couple of years ago called The Slow Hustle as well. So I'd love to hear some of your backstory, and then maybe you can discuss a little bit about uh, The Slow Hustle before we get into your current project. Yeah, absolutely, man. Real quick origin on The Slow Hustle is that it started during the most stressful time of my life. And um, I was running a startup. It wasn't going well. Had a bunch of other projects going on. Came home one day, decided I was to start this podcast. My wife looked at me and said, you're the most stressed out I've ever seen you. You're going to start another project. Um, and the reason was, is I wanted to get an idea of what people's life was like, specifically entrepreneurs, um, you know, after they, after they went home, after they closed up shop. Cause I felt like I was super stressed out. Things weren't going well. And I thought this can't be what my life was supposed to be, right? This can't be the entrepreneur life. And so uh, the interviews and the ideas were trying to peel back the layers and have an understanding of like the whole life story, right? And so like somebody on the surface may look like they're super successful. Things are going really well for them. But what's that life really like? What do the kids say about them? What does the wife say or husband say about them? Um, are they happy, right? Are they, do they feel fulfilled? All these different things. And so that's what the show was about. And it was really interesting because in the end, I find that regardless of its first time founder, someone who's getting ready to start, start their own company or someone who's invested in 1400 companies, which was one of the people we interviewed, it didn't matter. They were all struggling with the same stuff. They were all going through the same things. They were all trying to learn the same, um, same lessons. And so that was really you know, foundational for me because it felt like we're all going through it, the same, same stuff. You really don't overcome a lot of the things, right? Like the, the uh, imposter syndrome and all these other things that happen as a founder, whether you're first time founder or 20th time founder. So that's what the show was about. And also what was interesting is that, um, you know, I grew up in an immigrant family and I remember my dad coming home. We ran a grocery store and he came home one day dancing in the kitchen, literally, because he's so excited how great the business is doing. And it could be like a day or two later, he'd have his head in his hands and he would be talking about how he doesn't know how they're going to make it. And I thought this guy's crazy. Like, there's no way that you can have this massive swing of emotions until I started going through the same exact things as a founder, right? And all it takes is you're going to have 20 positive reviews and one negative. And what happens? You start questioning everything. You start wondering, am I doing it right? Right? Am I really the person that's cut out to do this type of business? And so finding those things and finding those supports through Slow Hustle and the people that we've talked to through the couple hundred episodes, it was just interesting. Like everybody goes through that. Everybody questions. Everybody feels like an imposter at some point. So a lot of great stuff in there. So I, I want to hear more about your ideas behind Slow Hustle. And I'm sure we'll talk about that as we get into the business that you're, you're currently building. Uh, and I also, obviously you talked about the struggles as an entrepreneur, but you also touched on your parents were immigrants. They were entrepreneurs. So I imagine you got your first taste of being an entrepreneur and being in business for yourself early on. Can you take us back to when you were a kid and, and your first experiences in your own business or your parents' business? No doubt. So I started at the age of seven, getting paid about $5 a day. And I was happy to, to get paid that little amount, right? And I remember begging my parents to work there. I just, I loved 
the whole idea of like peddling products, right? And as soon as I figured out like, oh, you buy a can of whatever it was for 40 cents, sell it for a dollar. This is like magic, right? It's like, it was like, to me, it was like just creating money. So even at eight, I apologize for interrupting, but even at age seven, you were able to see the value of that, right? You bought it for 40 cents, could resell it for more. So even at that young age, it struck you and it was just magical. Yes, it was totally magical. And the thing is, is like, you know, as a parent of four kids, you start to realize like there's some nature, there's some nurture, right? And so Mike, I have an older brother, younger sister, and they grew up in the store too. And they thought it was interesting, but I found it really, really interesting, right? So it's almost like there was something inherent um, in that, uh, you know, in my DNA, something that was in my personality that just really latched onto that. And I, I can still distinctly remember begging them to stay, like, because they, they would, uh, my mom would work in the morning and my dad would work at night. And so and I would sometimes be there for the exchange, right? So my dad would drive there to, you know, change shifts. And then I would ride home with my parents, with my mom. And I remember in that exchange being like, no, I want to stay. Like, I want to work here. You know, I want to do <laughs> this thing. Yeah, I just totally loved it, you know? And so, you know, from a very young age, earlier than legal, I would be selling beer, making sandwiches, filling the cooler, mopping the floor. I mean, anything that needed to happen. This is like a t- true country store. I could make it happen. Right. Um, And so from that early age, I just, I found that transaction really interesting, which looking back now, it makes, it it makes sense that I'm so interested in e-commerce because that is just, it's the same thing, right? It's just peddling product. It's on the internet. It's not in person in the middle of nowhere in Florida, but it's, it's really all the same, right? I find someone who's interested in this product that I bought at wholesale, sell it at retail. And that's, that's kind of it, right? Yeah. And, and talking about, you know, about how your venture now is doing the same thing, but on the internet, you mentioned earlier, you had some struggles, right? And that you, that there were some things that didn't go so well, were some of those, I think I read a story maybe about something you were doing on the internet almost 20 years ago that didn't go so well, um, or that might've been a struggle or a challenge. Are you, you want to share some of that? <laughs> well, so I did start peddling products on the internet back in 2000. So 19 years ago, which seems like a very long time ago. And so, you know, I don't know specifically the story that you're referring to, but I will tell you a little bit about kind of how that whole thing um, happened, if that's what you're you're wondering. Yeah, that's great. I would love to hear about it. Um, And so, uh, you know, so grew up in this entrepreneurial, you know, small business owner, really family. um, And then going through college, I'm studying to be an engineer. I'm I'm broke, right? And I'm just doing what I need to do as a college student. And I meet a guy and fast forward, I start buying products from him wholesale. And they're automotive products to sell to friends of mine. And uh, the thing, the problem was I didn't have any money. I didn't have any money at all. And so what I would do is I would sell stuff on eBay or sell stuff to friends and I would collect the cash first. And then I would rush over in between classes to his house, pick up the products, pay for them, um, and then rush over to mailboxes, et cetera, right? Which is now the UPS store. Okay. And I would, I would package these boxes in the parking lot. I'd have boxes and packing peanuts and, and a tape gun. And I would p- pack these shipments, right? And have my shipping labels printed out. And that's how that started, right? Until I had enough cash to actually stock product like a, like a real business. But you made it happen. And the funny thing is, I mean, that's not an uncommon story. These days, a lot of people talk about, or they were a few years ago, that uh, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, that's basically how he got started. Mm-hmm. Uh, he started a bookstore online, but he didn't own any books. Basically, he would take orders online. And when somebody ordered a book, he'd go out, he'd try and buy it for as cheap as possible. And and then he'd resell it a lot of times at a loss. Mm -hmm. But his strategy was, this is how I need to get started. This is what I, this is how I pay my dues. And a lot of entrepreneurship is just this, this type of bootstrapping, figuring out how you can start making money without spending money first. And, And that's, that's a big challenge we face. 
Totally. Yeah. And even before online, I remember, you know, a million years ago when uh, when catalogs came in the mail and that's how you bought that's how you bought clothes and that's how you bought books and that's how you bought school supplies and that's how you bought whatever and founders would tell stories all the time about how they would go and they would find some print company that would print this catalog and they would do a prototype of a product and they would put it in this catalog and it would arrive in your mailbox and then when someone would call the 1-800 number to order it the operator would be like oh i'm so sorry we're about two weeks back ordered because it is so popular, but we're going to give you 10% off for your patients. And that became their test marketing too, right? They would see mm-hmm. how many calls came in for different products. And then they would actually go and physically create the product that never existed in the first place. So it's just a really great way that entrepreneurs who are willing to make it happen, just go out there and figure out a way to make it happen. So mm-hmm. I love that you were doing the same thing. So <laughs> you are, you, you didn't have the money. So you were, you were, you are getting these orders on eBay. You are working in mailboxes, et cetera, to fulfill them and so on. And, and so, you know, that, that sounds like, uh, that sounds like, uh, super simple, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, right. How easy is that? Um, and obviously I'm being entirely <laughs> facetious there. That is a lot of work. And, and, uh, how long did that venture last? Well, I'm still running that business, actually. You're um, still running that business. Yeah, Check it's, it's, it out. Well, it's interesting. It kind of runs in the background and has been for several years. And it's just a very small company now, but it's my baby, right? And it's like, I can't still kill. have right. it. Right. And are, are yeah. you still working with that same supplier for parts? Um, we still work with the same supplier. Yes, we do. on. Yeah. Yeah, we still Two do. Two decades later. Yes. Yep. That is amazing. Yep. That's yep. absolutely amazing. Okay. Yeah. So, so that was your first foray into business. What was the next thing that came along? Yeah. So, you know, that, that business has kind of been the thread, right? And so after that, we moved from Florida to Iowa, start having a bunch of kids, right? That's, that's all happening in the background. Real easy. That's not a big deal, right? No, um, not just, at all. Yeah. So started teaching classes on um, online business related things just locally here in the state. And then um, had an opportunity to co-found a business um, it was a content marketing software that we built and, um, and, and went through the whole patent process and all that with someone here locally. And that was a five-year venture. And, you know, I was, that's, that's right around the time, you know, near the end of that, when I started Slow Hustle. Um, and, uh, that was the, the, this kind of impetus for that because it was incredibly stressful. You know, I went from a guy who was running a team of like a couple of people with the automotive company and a bunch of contractors to running a team of 12 to 14 folks and trying to build some software, just totally out of my league, right? Out of my realm. And so that was, that was really the next venture, uh, during the time that I was still running that e-commerce company. So can you, for our listeners who aren't sure, what exactly is content marketing software? Well, <laughs> this one was very, very complicated. And so uh, if you don't know what content marketing is, which I think we all do, right? It's developing some content around the topic that you're trying to uh, draw traffic in through, right? Um, and so we were able to create some software, develop a community so that anybody in any space could get um, content created very quickly on any topic they wanted, Right. And okay. so, and so we had like a trailer manufacturer that, that sold horse trailers. We would, we were able to spin up a site very quickly that would, um, then begin to generate through the community, a lot of horse related content, right? So then you would be able to get horse related eyeballs via, you know, uh, Google. And, um, those people were, would eventually be in the market for what a horse trailer, right? Um, so that's just one example. And so we were selling the software in the community to be able to spin those types of, com- um, uh, uh, content sites up. 
Interesting. So you mentioned, I think, somewhere in in the backstory of that, that you had to go through the whole uh, patent registration process. Did yeah. I capture that accurately? Yes. What's that all about? How does how does how do you make that happen? How do you say? And let me back up and say, how did you even realize there was a need to put a patent on it? Well, it's one of these things where you're trying to protect the software that you're building, right? Protect this concept of yours. And so whether it's a piece of software or an innovative product that you're putting together, um, if you are first mover, right? And you feel like you've got something that's going to give you a strategic advantage, um, then you have to try to protect it, right? Now you're not, I say try, because you're not always going to be successful. Like this one, we went through three years of it, several submissions. It never, it was never accepted. Um, but you know, you have that, you have trademarks. I mean, like with mission meets, we, you know, we have, we have the name trademarked, we have some of our flavors trademarked. Um, so if you have something where you feel like it's going to give you a strategic advantage, you owe it to yourself to go through that submission process. Got it. And, and what is that submission process? Do you need to hire a patent attorney? Do you, is it an online process? Do you have to physically go to an office somewhere in Washington, DC? And what, what are, what, how do you actually physically go about making that happen? Just like anything legal, right? You can go anywhere from doing it yourself, right? The whole like legal Zoom type of thing, right? Um, all the way up to having someone who is specially trained in trademarks or specially trained in patents, right? Um, I, I typically don't recommend doing the cheapest version because typically, you know, we don't know what we're doing. I mean, most of the people listening, you don't, you've never done this before. Um, let's not try to learn it and try to jump through all the hoops, right? Um, you also probably don't need the Ferrari. You don't need someone who's, you know, doing trademarks all day long, but someone may be in the middle, right? Same thing goes with, with any sort of legal representation. So we hired a, someone who's been trained, a lawyer or attorney that's been trained in doing patent submissions or mission meets example, trademark submissions. And we had that person do all the paperwork and fill it out and give us some guidance on, on exactly how to do it. So that's, that's what I recommend. Great. Great. Thank you for those tips. Mm-hmm. And then go ahead, Jay. So I was going to say, so you start off your, your career, um, your entrepreneurial career, uh, basically reselling somebody else's product. Mm-hmm. Then you move on to creating your own product, but it's a software product. So uh, essentially, your your the actual goods that you're selling are virtual; they're not a physical product. And so you're kind of making this transition from uh, wholesaling to product creator, but virtual product creator. And then I think your next step is you actually get into physical products, and and that gets us a little bit closer to where we are today. Can you tell us what? kind of drove that evolution in your mind from one type of business to the next. Yeah. And I will just kind of side note here real quick. I am, and I recently went through an assessment test called Caliper, which we should talk about probably. I am the type of person who loves to ideate. I can do it all day long. I could talk ideas with you all day long and we could flush out all of the details, right? But in the end, I've also got maybe a little bit of a focus problem, right? And so through all of these years and, so, and all of these projects, and there's a lot of other things we probably won't even touch on, right? Because there's too many details. I come to find out that because of my nature and because I like to ideate, I, and I'm also a little bit scattered, it causes some problems, right? And so you just talked about how, you know, I'm peddling and I'm wholesaling and then I'm doing software and now I'm getting into physical goods. One of the things I found out along the way was that I needed to pare down and to focus and to really take a step back and think, just because this is a good idea, is this actually for me? And it's become such a, such in, um, uh, a, a thing in my mind that when someone comes to me with an idea, the first thing I usually ask is, why you? 
Why are you the person to do this? And so I'm bringing this up because through this process, it's been very formative for me because it's, I've finally been able to hone in on what do I like to do and what am I actually good at and where do those things cross over? And every other good idea that comes up, I will tell myself, good idea, but not for you, right? So just something for the listener to think about as they're going through some of the ideas is to make sure that they know that what they're pursuing is something that overlaps with their strengths just because it's a good idea doesn't really mean a whole lot of anything, right? Ideas are a dime a dozen. That's a really great tip. When I was living, it, that makes me think of when I was living in Atlanta, I had a really good friend and her husband had been like the number two person in a, a relatively sizable company there. And he started in that company uh, right out of right out of high school. I believe if I remember correctly, the owner, it, the story went something like the owner just, he was working, it was a retail location. And he was working there as a cashier or something. The owner meets the guy and just like kind of adopts him as the son that he never had and brought him up through the organization. And he did really, really well. And he had been there for 20 some years. Well, after those 20 some years, as much as he loved it, he was just like, I'm just burnt out. I've learned so much in this business. I want to venture out and do my own business. But he didn't want to full on develop a product or develop something totally new. So they decided to go down the line of franchising, right? So they wanted to buy a franchise. And they went through this six or 12 month process talking about all of these different types of franchises and ultimately narrowed it down to three different ones. And the three that they landed on were a yogurt shop because yogurt, the whole make your own yogurt was really popular at the time. The number two was a, a build your own sandwich type of scenario. And the third one was some specialty type of gym. And it was fascinating because the numbers on the two food ones were just explosive. They were just like, it, it was when you just looked at the numbers component of it, it was head over heels, either the yogurt or the sandwiches were the way to go. That said, he, he was like, where do I want to spend my time every day? A, I don't like yogurt. So that's like, we're just ditching that one. B, sandwiches are fine, but they're sandwiches. But you know what? I love working out and I love being around people who are really health-minded and who are really conscious about a wellness type of lifestyle. So they ultimately ended up going with the gym franchise because he knew he would just pour his heart and soul into it so much more because it was something that he was good at and something that he understood. Mm -hmm. So I think that is a really good tip. Just like you said, for our listeners, realize what you're good at, realize where your strengths are and focus your efforts and your business on that. Would you agree? Critically important. Critically important because in the end, ideas are great. You get super excited. And then what happens? Reality sets in. There's all this work to do. And man, if you don't like the topic or you don't like the product, you're not interested in the market or you don't like your customer base, it is not going to work, right? Or if you get it to work, you're lucky enough to get it to work, you're going to be miserable, right? Totally. And so you get over it. You got to be into it. You really got to be into it. Now, does it have to be your passion? Maybe not, but you got to at least have some sort of interest because that's going to shine through all your marketing, all your copywriting, all your messaging. You're going to be, people are going to be able to tell this person's having fun or this person is really, really miserable, right? They're not enjoying what they're doing. They're just doing it because there's a transaction, there's money on the table, but it's not, that's not everything, right? Right. It's, that's only such a small piece of the puzzle, such a small piece of it all. So take us take take us to the next step. So uh, you started your content marketing business or content marketing software business, and mm-hmm. how did that go? It went very very poorly. It was horrible, actually. What happened? 
Um, well, so, you know, not to get into too many of the details because there's, you know, this, it didn't end well, but, you know, I had a partner and we, you know, come to find out that we don't see eye to eye on some of the, 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 the basics, right? And so, so the more, our moral code was different. The way that we saw the world was different. The way that we saw the business was different. It's all, just a lot of the things, the way that we saw things is just, we're, we're not seeing things eye to eye, right? And so we also did not have a complementary skill set. And so um, between those things and also just not, I was not interested in content marketing. It's like I had, I d- didn't care about it. There was a huge market opportunity. So I did exactly the opposite of everything I just preached, right? And so all those things came together to be some of the most miserable years of my life. I didn't really necessarily want to manage a massive team. I didn't want to be doing HR. Like all the things that I ended up doing um, in the end, I was just a completely miserable. And so, you know, start slow hustle, but at the same time, um, you know, I've got four kids. We travel a lot and we started traveling even more. And uh, I remember I'm walking down PCH, Pacific Coast Highway. I'm reading a book um, called Bold by Peter Diamandis. And in that book, um, there's uh, something about having a mission focused into or baked into your organization. And I thought, that's cool. I've never, you know, you know, we, we tie it to our church. We're, we're a giving family, but I never had it really baked into like the ethos of a business. I never even thought about it. And so I thought, that's cool. Put it in my back pocket. Fast forward a little bit. Um, we have an opportunity to, uh, to, you know, to start mission meets. And, um, and then I meet someone who also wanted to have a mission kind of baked into their company. And so that was kind of like the beginning days of mission meets. Um, but to step back into, into this content marketing company, you know, in the end, I come to this realization, you know, kind of on the beginning of what I, everything I just preached earlier. And it's that I don't really care, you know, what the market's market opportunity was. Right. I didn't, I just, it didn't matter anymore, right? You just um, I, had to do it. I started to realize, like, my life, I don't like what I'm doing. And I don't, I don't like the way that my life's going. And I don't like, you know, and learning through all these interviews that I was having, it was like, this stuff doesn't even matter, you know? In the end, as my mentor always says, it's like two blinks and your kids are out of, you know, your, your kids are going to be out of, uh, out of college. Because like, before you know it, that's going to be over. And, and do I want to look back and say, yeah, those, you know, when my kids were growing up, those are the most miserable years of my life because I stuck with this company that I wasn't interested in. Um, and so I made a deliberate, not super like, you know, uh, rash, rash or anything, but I made a deliberate decision that I'm going to, you know, kind of venture away from it. Um, and, you know, I'm not trying to crush the company or anything, but just kind of step back slowly and then start working on something, uh, cooking on a project that I was really, you know, super passionate about. Okay. So I, I have to ask, um, you just told us a story about how part of the big downfall of your involvement in, in your software company uh, was the lack of cohesiveness you had with your partner, just mm-hmm. partner issues. Um, but then you turn around and you jump into your next venture with another partner. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about what you learned from the bad experience, how you translate that into the good experience? What kind of due diligence did you do before you jumped in with your next partner? I assume at that point you, you looked at things differently and, and you were a little bit more careful before jumping into bed with a, a, a new business partner. Yeah, very, very much different. And I will tell you too, what's interesting about ex- uh, uh, extremely bad experiences is that um, you at least get to learn from them. And what's most interesting to me is that your body, uh, your your mind almost like uh, it files it away, right? It, and it mostly files the feelings away. And um, here's what I mean by that is that when you have find yourself in a position 
this happens to me anyways. I find my body saying, oop, this feels like that other thing that, you know, that other thing that went bad, Peter, this feels a lot like that one, right? Um, and so it's almost like alarm bells start going off and you're able to check yourself and say, oh yeah, it, you can you can see this um, maybe bad decision or bad situation about to happen again. And you can kind of skirt around it, which I find really interesting. So um, it's almost like the, my way of saying, you know what, it was worth going through that because now I can identify those situations going forward. So, so what are some of the questions or the the more quantitative things you thought about when deciding? Do I want to enter into a new partnership? What what were some of the the concrete things that went through your head before you made that decision? Yeah, and so I think what's critically important is a complementary skill set, right? So, especially if you're you're starting out, you're both going to be doing kind of everything. You don't have any employees yet or any of this stuff, and so you got to be able to say, you know, here here are my roles. This is what I'm good at. And you're, here are the things that I'm not good at. Who's going to cover those things, right? And hopefully there's there's some overlap there. You're not going to be able to fill all the holes, but you want to be able to fill most of them, at least the critical ones, right? So Nick um, is my partner in Mission Meats. He's got all this offline food distribution experience. I don't even know what that means, right? Like, I, I don't know how to like, yeah, he started like a whole food hub where he was distributing, you know, making deals with with vendors and then actually making sure that they made it the last mile and actually get delivered to these uh, these partners and making the sales and all that. I don't I don't even know where to start with that stuff, right? So he's able to do that. He's got a degree in not necessarily meat science, but what related to meat science. I didn't know that was a degree. Right, meat all this, science. Right, Who would have thought? Like, What's Whoever that? Would have thought. Who would have thought? Right? right. So I'm going to school for meat science. Yeah, he's worked in he's worked in in in, in plants, and um, he knows how to do production. He knows what the machines are called and how they work, and all this. I don't know any of that stuff, right? So for me, I was like, okay, this is incredible because I don't know how the supply chain works or any of that. I do know how to sell a lot of stuff on the internet. I've been doing it for for a long time. He doesn't know anything about it, right? So for us, it was like mash made in heaven. So to me, I'm like, holy crap, this is going to work, right? But on learning from my past experience, like that was not enough. But beneath all of that, which really supports everything else that we work on and everything else that we talk about is that we have the same moral code, right? So he's got three kids. I have four. Family's first for both of us. Like we're not going to work ourselves to death at the expense of our family. Not going to happen. Money's important to both of us, but it's not everything. Like we, we both live very minimally, we like to be comfortable, but we don't need a Ferrari. Like we're that's not that important to us. We both like to give back. We both spend a lot of time um, doing mission work. Like we have this serious common bond. Do we vote the same? Probably not. Do we have the same like outlook on on certain things? No, we argue a lot. But in the end, like we have this this foundation that is pivotal, right? Because it informs all of the decisions that we make. Like everything we make is based on that. Um, and we were just joking the other day, we thought we were saying, man, if we wanted to blow this company up, like, and we're already growing very quickly. Like, man, if we wanted to 10X in the next two years, we could. You could we, totally do it. We could. You realize it. But we, we would kill ourselves, right? We would, we would like lose our family and lose sight of everything. So we're like, wait, we will not do that. You won't do that. And you're both on the same page with that, which is the nice thing. So, so you meet Nick, it's out, you, you mentioned earlier, kind of an opportunity presented itself to, to start this company. Did I capture that correctly? Yeah. What does that mean? The opportunity presented itself. I can't imagine a big, a big stash of meat just fell out of the sky and landed in the middle of your living room. So how does, tell us more, because I'm so curious, how does this opportunity, quote unquote, present itself? That's a fascinating term to use. <laughs> the meat sticks fell out of the ceiling. Uh, Boom, there no, they were. 
No. So I have a friend. Um, so we live in Iowa, right? And so there's a lot of farming here, if you didn't know that. And uh, so I had a friend of mine, he was in the grass-fed beef business. And um, during the same time that I'm reading Bold, he calls me and he's like, hey, I just entered into a deal. I'm getting ready to enter into a deal, selling the company. Um, and I thought, man, congratulations. That's awesome. But I also knew that he had some e-commerce component because I'd helped him with a little bit of that. And through that conversation, um, I thought, man, it'd be cool to, to do something similar to that, like that again with, you know, we could work together or something like that. And he said, well, you know, I can't do it. I've got a non-compete. I'm going to be working with the company for a long time, but you know what? You really had a knack for it. You should probably do something. And I thought, hmm, that's weird. I, I mean, me, I, no, you know, but I'd also <laughs> read thing. this. I read it. I just read this thing. This uh, He actually called me while I'm reading this book, you know, bold about the whole mission thing. So I thought, no, oh, I'll file this meat, weird meat thing, a related, you know, related thing away in my pocket. So, uh, you know, this is when we were traveling, we get back home and I ended up having this conversation with my wife's friend's husband, Nick. And uh, he's like, friend's you know, husband is Nick. So yeah. I'm sorry, did you, so you were friendly with Nick already? You knew Nick uh-huh. yeah. and you were buddies. So you knew you had the same moral code. You had the same values, yeah. especially when you both got kids, you know, that you kind of think the same way, you operate the same way. So yes. you had some kind of background and relationship there already. Totally. Yep. I already knew him huh. on that friendly level. Yep. Okay. Yep. And, okay we had, cool. and we had talked shop before and I thought, man, this guy's really, you know, he is really intelligent. Like he knows, he understands the workings of business. And, um, and so I ended up talking with him. I don't know. We were talking about something. He, he had mentioned something like, yeah, I'd like to start this mission related business. And I thought, really? Hmm. That's interesting. And I tell him this, this story that I, you know, this conversation I had. And, um, and then long story short, what's crazy is that we started like thinking about like what, maybe what we would do. And, um, I said, well, what, what would the name of the business be? You have any ideas? He's like, I think I would like to call it mission meets. I had already written mission meets down. I already had this, this, you know, it's like Google, Google Glass. I had Quip. It's called Quip. Um, I had, in my Quip, I had all these names and mission meets was at the top. And then we started ideating like on logos and stuff like that. And we already had already drawn up this very similar logos, which is the Trinity knot, which is what we use. So it was just, it was very, very weird. Right. And, um, and so like just all these things coming together, I thought, man, maybe this is, maybe somebody's trying to tell me something. Maybe this is what we should do. And so that's kind of how the idea happened. Now from there to getting product on the shelf was another story. Like that was quite a bit of work and we could talk about that. Um, but that's how we got together and that's how it started to happen. Excellent. Thanks for that. I want to ask one more question about that. So you knew each other, you had the relationship, you had the same moral code, the same ethics. You had already both thought of this name together. You had already uh, separately, but together, you had the logo that was similar, all of those things. And we talked a little bit earlier about how there were things you were good at, things he was good at. Did you, did you, did the two of you sit down together and full on map out? I'm going to, re- to be responsible for A, B, C, and D. You are going to be responsible for E, F, and G. Or did it naturally happen? And I ask that um, it, because because we have so many listeners who do talk about partnerships, and and I'm wondering how critical it is to to very solidly map those things out rather than letting them organically happen. Or is there a type of balance there somewhere? There's a bit, there's definitely a balance there. I think that we did not like clearly map it out. It did happen organically, but I will say that we did have lots of conversations on who was going to be responsible for what, as far as like talking through marketing ideas. It was very clear 
once you start talking through, oh, we're talking through logistics. Well, Nick's got all the ideas on logistics. I don't know squat about the logistics. Clearly, he's going to be handling that. Um, I'm talking marketing, and he has no interest in marketing. Now, I think that we're very fortunate because we have very little overlap. Like, he doesn't care about the copy I'm writing. He doesn't even want to look at it. Like, dude, you do it. I don't even want to look at it. I have no interest, right? Not every partnership is going to be like that. And the more overlap there is, the more potential for conflict, right? Because maybe somebody wants to be attached to something that you're doing versus the other person. And I think in those situations, it's critical to have it all written down. Um, one other tidbit, which is very difficult to, um, I think, to overcome for some folks is that you want to make sure there isn't any ego involved. And I don't really know exactly how to describe that, except for that. Um, Nick and I, we always say, we're like, I don't really care who's right or wrong, Right. I, I, we just want to, we just want to have some more sales, right? We want more yeah. revenue. Want and so if, if I have to be wrong for him to be right and we can make more revenue, I don't care, right? Like, that doesn't bother me one bit at all. I don't need to be right all the time. Um, and so to get ego out of the way for us was fairly natural because I had already been in a very, very egotistical kind of partnership where we both were butting heads all the time. We always, always wanted to be right. Um, but if you haven't had that um, life experience, just to understand that you've got to get the ego out of the way. Otherwise, there's going to be an immense amount of conflict when you're kind of, uh, you know, attached to an idea and you want to kind of push your agenda forward, even though it may not be the best idea. Awesome. So, okay. So you and Nick have decided you're going to move forward with this business. You have a name, you have an idea, you know what the product's going to be. To what degree did you sit down and say, okay, here's our business plan. Here's how we're going to grow the business. Here's where we want to be in a year or five years or 10 years. Did you have a discussion about what the what the growth of the company would look like and what your goals were? Because I know a lot of people, uh, they form a partnership and, and they don't sit down and have that discussion. Then they get three years in and one of them realizes they wanted to build a lifestyle business. The other one wants to be a billionaire. Mm-hmm. And so it, it starts to cause tension. Did you have these discussions with Nick about what the goal of the business, what the size of the business, are you going to hire employees? All these types of questions that will ultimately drive where the business goes, how quickly it goes, and 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 what your ultimate responsibilities are going to be with respect to the business. Yeah, we absolutely had conversations with where we wanted the business to go and what we wanted to look like. Right, like we w- we wanted it to be our primary um, businesses. We wanted it to be our focus. Um, we both were not interested in going through like some sort of merger or acquisition. Like that was not of interest to us at all. We did leave that open. So say five years down the road or three years down the road, if that opportunity presented itself, then we would entertain it. We weren't like totally close to it, right? With that said, um, I am uh, of the mind that you don't know what you don't know, right? And so we could, so I've never been a business plan guy in in that regards because I'm like, I can put together a forecast and I could tell you how lofty and how amazing this business is going to be. But if it's my first foray in meat, for example, I have no idea, right? And so for us, um, and for me specifically, constantly trying to mitigate against some sort of major failure. And so just to give you an example, like we started this company with a very, very, very small order. Like we found a, uh, a meat plant that would produce for us at an absurdly low quantity. And the reason we did that was because, hey, you know, Nick and I, we feel like we agree. Everything on paper seems great. The relationships is awesome, but I, I, I've not proven this out. I don't know that I can actually create a market for this or that I can like tap into the current market that's there. I don't know that just because I had good shops and automotive that I can actually make this thing work. And, um, and then we don't know exactly how we work together because we haven't worked together yet. Right. And so that, and that's still how we operate the company. 
not that we uh, you know place small orders anymore. We don't. But anytime we're going into an, an uncharted territory, we're going to test, and we're going to test and test and test, and we're going to validate whether this this uh, opportunity is actually going to present itself, whether it's actually going to work, and then we'll scale accordingly. And so um, I don't know if that answers your question, Jay, but I feel like you know anybody, the person that's listening that's got a partnership or they've got an opportunity, they've got to test small and test quickly, right? And then that way, hey, if it fails, you learned a little bit, you lost a little bit of money, but it's not the end of the world, right? Instead of, instead of ordering a truckload of meat sticks, you know, you know what I mean? That's great. Okay. So then let's talk about that because I find this fascinating, um, coming up with new products and testing those products and actually figuring out what's going to work to whatever degree you can do that before you actually start spending a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort trying to get that product in people's hands. So what was the what was the methodology that you and Nick used to decide this is going to be our first product or our first two products or first three products? How did you validate that customers would want those products? And then we can get into how we actually start getting those products into people's hands. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm a firm believer of paying attention to the information that's already out there, Pay t- paying attention to what is in plain sight, right? And so there are plenty of tools that you can scrub either Amazon or websites or wherever. And you can see kind of like flavors that are out there. You can see what's what's being sold. You can validate kind of like reading reviews, reading comments, going on Google, like doing all these things and to see kind of what people have voted for with their wallets already, right? You can do that with consumer packaged goods, but you can do that really with anything, right? And whether you're going on Yelp or TripAdvisor, whatever business you're looking to start, you can see what consumer interest has already been. It's very simple, right? And then not trying to be too far afield, not trying to get too cute, as Nick says, too cute with it, right? So let's already, let's just do what people are doing. Let's get our feet wet. Let's try to do it in the very lowest risk way possible. And just see, like, just because it's a good market and it aligns with my interests, like we talked about earlier, doesn't mean you're going to be good at it. So let's let's validate that we're actually going to be good at it. Let's actually validate that we can develop our own market for this stuff. And then you can get farther afield, right? Got it. So you're basically using information that's already out there. And I love this, by the way. So basically you're saying there are competitors out there. There's always going to be competitors. If you can't find competitors, then you're you're in the wrong business that's or, right. or you're lying to yourself. Uh, <laughs> so there are competitors out there. They've got products that are presumably already selling. We can kind of do what they're doing. But presumably, you have an idea for how you as a company are going to have a competitive advantage. You're going to do something better than they are. Maybe you're going to sell somewhat the same product. Maybe you're going to market the same same sales channels. Maybe you're going to sell for the same price. Maybe not. So what at this point did you decide is your competitive advantage going to be? Yeah. So there's a, a number of things that we are always trying to do differently, right? And Or better. And it's that we want to we want to make clean food accessible to everyone, right? To as many people as possible, anyways, right? And so we're doing that through philanthropy and giving stuff away, but we can also do that through providing uh, the product at lowest cost possible, right? So we and we don't want to be like the the lowest priced product out there necessarily, um, but we will definitely want it to be the most affordable, most accessible to people. We also want to make it as clean as possible. So like we're formulating a new product right now in a complementary space that will be the cleanest product ever produced. In the, in the history, right? So it's, it's never been made before. Now, do we know that people already are interested in this product? Yes. We've already validated it through uh, sales uh, velocity and reviews on Amazon and through websites and all that stuff like I, like I just talked about. But yeah, we're going to have a strategic advantage. But 
You could even not start there, right? Let's say it's going to be too costly for you to innovate the very first round, right? Maybe there's manufacturing, maybe there's molds, maybe there's some sort of tooling or whatever it is, you know, depending on your industry that is associated with you get being innovative and you need to just like sell a similar product that's going to get you out there and get some money in your pocket and then you can innovate. That's okay, right? As long as you know that eventually you're going to be able to get to a place where you've got the strategic advantage, right? Because uh, it's not just about product. It's not just about price. Um, the one thing that I think we do an incredibly good job of is we call it customer delight, right? We just, we just um, named our guy customer delight, no, director of customer delight. But um, customer service for us, I mean, I don't know how many emails we've gotten from people that are like, I cannot believe the experience we're having with you. Like if I had a pro- if they have a problem, we take care of it, period, Right whether that's a full refund, a free new product, it doesn't really matter. Like we are there to make the situation, you know, correct. Um, and so we, we get countless, countless emails from customers that are just, you know, espousing that, right? If that's the right word. And so there's all these different angles where you can uh, uh, improve upon what's already happened. Now, one other thing I'll talk about, you know, we talk about reviews um, or customer sentiment, which is all over the internet, right? People talk about and review things probably maybe too much. Um, You can see in there, there are hints in there of issues in that market. And you can, that could be your improvement, right? That could be your strategic advantage. Like, wow, people have a serious issue with X, Y, and Z. Well, then you make that a point for X, Y, and Z to be your number, you know, your one, two, and three uh, uh, goals to be better, to be improving upon that product in the market. Yeah, I, I love this because you've you've alluded to this a couple times. It, it used to be um, when we were starting businesses and running businesses 20, 30 years ago, uh, and yes, I'm old, um, we would have to do things like focus groups. If you wanted yeah. to know what a customer wanted, you'd have to have a focus group. If you wanted to know what customers hated about existing products, you did a different focus group. If you wanted to know what people thought about selling in certain quantities or certain price points, you'd have another focus group. It was focus group after focus group after focus group. These days, we have all this information. It's all out there. It's on review sites. It's on Amazon. Um, it's, it's, it's all around us. And smart business owners are basically, they're not spending the money on focus groups. They're not spending the time. They're not spending the effort hiring these companies that, that, are going to charge you a thousand or three thousand dollars a day to do a focus group and put one together. You can go out there and you can get all that information yourself just by reading review sites. And so you did this to determine what product you wanted to sell. You did this to determine presumably price points. And now you're doing this to determine what are the problems that that customers in this space are trying to overcome and what your competitors are trying to overcome. So basically, you can you can cut them off. You can, you can solve those problems before you ever put a product out there. So And different, mm-hmm. differentiate yourself in the process. Mm-hmm. So after you were able to glean all that data, what were the first couple of products you ultimately decided to launch? Yeah. And so we launched with one flavor and it was original, which is like the most basic flavor ever, right? And because I alluded earlier to like, just because you've got a goal of kind of where you want to be, you might not be able to get there right in the beginning, right? And so for us, it was like easiest to go to market with this one flavor, one skews, one pack size. There's a 12 pack. That's it. And that's all we had. And the 12 pack of original. 12 pack original, right? I mean, how vanilla can you get? Like that's boring, right? But for me, it was like, just because, because so many experiences where it's like this market's so easy, like it's easy, you know, it's just right for the taking. You think all these things, it doesn't mean you're actually going to be able to execute, 
You just might not be the right guy or girl to do it. And so for me, I just want to know, can I actually execute? Can I, can I put my money where my mouth is and make this thing happen? In worst case scenario, I can't make it work. I sell product at cost and just say, that was fun. Didn't work. Try something else, right? Find us something um, new. And so that's what we launched with. We launched with one flavor and it was one palette and it, we didn't make any money on it because we had to pay through the nose to produce such a small quantity, but it didn't matter, right? We wanted a test. And so if you can get in your mind um, of, of a way to just like continue to test that idea, um, you'll be able to run through a lot of these maybe seemingly good ideas that don't work out and try to get to that winner. Okay. So, so I want to talk a little bit about what the actual process was to get that first batch out to test. Mm -hmm. Um, And we always talk in, in, in the business world about uh, you should be making money before you're spending money as much as possible. Um, Mm -hmm. Don't, don't go out and like you said, buy huge orders and, and then sell them. But presumably you had to spend some money. So you had to source your product, you had to do your packaging, had to create a logo, Perhaps was there FDA approvals involved? And, and then you actually had to do some marketing. So can you talk about like the actual process from the day you decided, okay, we're going to sell an original beef snack and we're going to sell it and we can talk about how you decide where to sell it. But from the day you decide this is what we're going to sell, what was the process to actually get that first batch like physically in your hands ready to, to get into a customer's hands? Yeah. I mean, so you got all the backend work, right? Like we got all the legal paperwork and the splitting of ownership and all that stuff, which we did ahead of time. Learned that from the past experience. We let that go till later and it was really, really bad, right? Um, so we got all our legal paperwork done. We got our name registered. We got our domain. We had to build a website, right? So we, we just we just did a really simple Shopify template. We had to make a visit to the plant and develop that relationship to go through some sample batches develop a logo, develop a label, figure out how to do, it's not FDA, but USDA approval process, right? And get that, get all of that stuff going. And when you say you had to, to go to a plant, so presumably there are companies out there that make these products and basically mm-hmm. allow you to what we call white label them, put your label on their products, or are you mm-hmm. custom designing a product that they're going to make for you specifically for you formulated with your flavors and colors and size and all that? How does that work? Yeah. It's well, there's, there's, there are both in the industry, but we follow the second route, right? So it's considered a co-packer. Um, and so you, and there's, you know, there's a number of co-packers all over the country developing anything that you want. Right. Um, and so we had a co-packer relationship that we developed that we went to go visit and with our recipe, they're able to, to deliver that product. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, and so you've got that and then you've got, you know, and then the, 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 we've got to get raw material out to them, which is the, which is the beef in this case. So that's a whole other relationship to develop and to um, to nurture and logistics to manage. And then once that product is produced, then it got shipped to us. Got it. Right. And then did you, for all of those other steps of the process you're talking about, Peter, all of the, the logo development, the packaging, the working with USDA, et cetera, did you use existing vendors for all of those? Did you bring people on board to do that? Did you hire contractors? Who were the relationships? Who are the people that you had to work with to make those parts of the process happen? Yeah. So in the beginning for the first, geez, I don't know, 18 months, it was just Nick and I. Um, And so, uh, but through past business experience, like I had a designer that I'd worked with many times, a good friend of mine. He did all of our design work. Um, he had worked on consumer packaged goods before. And so he understood kind of the rigmarole there and what they needed. Helped us figure out how to get UPC codes from GS1 and all that stuff, um, like legitimate UPC codes. 
And then uh, our co-packer helped us with the whole USDA submission process, reviewed our labels, was able to say, hey, you know, this this outline is not thick enough. You got to change it. Like really nitpicky stuff like that as a reality um, and helped us get the submission and all that process going. Nick had supply chain um, experience, right? Which I mentioned several times. And so he already had relationships with uh, beef production. And so he was able to source that for us. I just wanted to ask, I like to eat. So of course I have to ask when you're in the plant yeah. and you're physically working with these guys, how'd your whole taste test process go? Like that sounds like so crazy much fun. Was it just you and Nick or did you give it to all your friends or how did you decide what was the tastiest? Well, it's funny because in the beginning it was just that one, that one, you know, that one flavor. So it wasn't really that interesting, but it has gotten more and more fun. And so Nick and I, so Nick has all this meat lab experience. And so like we've actually worked in the meat lab, like hair nets and all. And we, there was one, one day we went and we developed 12 new flavors and six of them were disgusting. Right. But then we had six <laughs> that were like, wow, these are amazing, innovative cool. flavors that nobody's ever done. We're mixing in really weird ingredients. It's, it's a heck of a lot of fun. I will say though, saddest part is when this stuff's around you all the time, like I've got a drawer that I can never eat all these meat sticks. <laughs> I'm actually getting, t- I'm getting tired of them. And it's like the saddest <laughs> thing I've ever said, because I always love beef jerky and I've always loved stick. I love meat snacks. And I'm finally getting to a point where I'm like, I just, you know, I, I, really, I think I'd rather eat an apple because um, I'm just eating them so much. Like I can't eat, sure. I'm, I can't eat any more of them. Okay. I, I do want to talk about the growth phase, but uh, there's, there's one more step that we haven't talked about here. And to, to, tremendously simplify things. Basically, the first step in the process was you and your partner uh, figured out all the legal issues between the two of you. Uh, Presumably, you figured out the financial issues. Uh, You create a business entity. You got your website up. So that was part one. Part two was you actually got a physical product developed and in your hands, ready to go out to customers. So let's talk about part three, which is the actual sales and marketing and getting those products in the hands of customers. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about pricing and all that. I think that might be more of your your partner's area of responsibility. But if you want to talk about pricing, we'd love to hear about that as well. But basically, from the time you actually have product in your hands to getting that product out into the hands of your customers, what was that all about? You know, here's what's interesting is I think that... um I at least, I, I tend to rush and I want to like get through like, let's say label design, or I want to get through packaging design. Um, and I just want to get product out on the shelf. And I think that's a big mistake. I think that through a lot of this, uh, research that we talked about earlier, you can get a lot of hints for what people are looking for. And a lot of the problems they're looking to solve that the market maybe is not solving as well as they should or not at all. Right. Um, the reason I bring that up is because it will inform your marketing. It'll inform like the, the way your your pages are layout. It'll inform the, the 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 copy that you're writing. It'll inform essentially everything that you're doing in order to harness that uh, untapped need or, or or better tap the need that's there, right? And so we did a lot of that research um, to find out kind of like who the communities are, like the keto, the paleo, the whole thirty, the AIP, like all these different diets um, that are out there to find out kind of what it is that they're interested in, whether they're interested in low sugar, no sugar, carb-free, all the different terminology that they're using. And then to use that to inform kind of how we're building our copy and our pages on the website and how we're writing advertising. And so, you know, for, for me, we, we use all that, built, built the pages. Um, we also used Amazon. I use a lot of my CPG network of friends in order to get into some other large online retailers like Thrive Market um, and some other ones. And so that was the way we started getting the product out there. That backed with Google ads, Facebook ads, or Amazon ads, um, any way that we could push 
traffic to those listings to get some interest, right? And in the beginning for us, it was not about making any money, right? We luckily had other ventures um, that were, you know, filling that need so that we could really, truly vet this out as quickly as possible. And so we were taking all that we could to drive traffic in order to vet that we could actually move this product, that people actually liked it, that we knew what we were talking about, that they came back for a reorder, all these different things, right? And so for for quite a while, well over a year, we didn't draw a single dollar out of the business. We just continued to plow that back in in order to create some velocity for ourselves and, and really just to validate whether we liked running this business and we were good at it, um, which I think we did okay. That's awesome. So do you have any employees? We have one actual employee right now. Okay. And, um, and we, we, use, we, use, we use a lot of contractors. Got it. Okay. And so yeah. what, what's, what's the advantage there for your business using contractors versus employees? And I'd love to hear a little bit more about what that one employee. So it sounds like at least in one case, contractors weren't cutting it. So you, you hired an employee. Why was that? Yeah. So I'll answer the first one. Uh, first is, is um, you know, for me, it was about flexibility. And so if we were busier and you're using a contractor, especially if they're part of a larger agency, we can scale up much more quickly and not have to worry about hiring people and all that stuff. And conversely, if it's slow, then we, you know, of course we don't have to pay them as much or at all. And so I like the flexibility there. I also like being able to tap into a, a team of experts in certain areas that have different expertise. And so that's why we've used contractors. And then What's interesting is what is part of our ethos is not only testing like crazy and mitigating, is also mitigating risk, right? And so for me, it's like, well, I think I can probably use a full-time designer, but how do I know? Well, I know because I create demand. So let me create demand first. Let me utilize this person maybe up to half time or three-quarter time. And once I know that, damn, I got a lot of design work to do, then I can bring a full-time designer on because it's going to make sense, right? It's not just financial sense, but there's all this other headache associated, as you guys know, with employees and having to keep people on when it's slow and all this different stuff. So I do it for flexibility. It suits my preferences. It suits my lifestyle. It's not for everybody. We're also completely virtual, like all the contractors and everybody, I mean, we're, we're all truly remote. And so that's just the way that we've always operated. That's great. And I think there are a lot of people out there who hear this, have this idea of building a lifestyle business, um, but they can't reconcile that with building a quote unquote real business. They feel like a lifestyle business is kind of, and I hate this term, but I'm going to use it, a side hustle. Uh, a lifestyle yeah. business is something you don't really focus too much time on. You just make some extra income. And I think what people don't realize is, and, and this was, I think, a lot of your your the concept behind the slow hustle that you've pushed and are pushing, is that you can have a real business. You can have a business that is scalable and, and that can grow as big as you want it to grow. But it doesn't mean that you have to have 100 employees in a building working 18 hours a day. You, mm-hmm. you can have both. That's right. That's right. So, Peter, I think you mentioned that your company is how many years old now? Three, four? She's she's three and a half. Three and a half years old. And you said you've obviously grown exponentially over those years. And and you said one of your major areas of expertise is the marketing, the branding, the sales, all of those things that go into building your brand and retaining customers. Can you talk to us more about your branding decisions? I'd like to hear specifically about how your your mission-based strategy has really helped you grow. And then as well as that other fun things that keep that surprise and delight going with your customer base to grow the company the way you have. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as far as the mission is concerned, like for me, it's like, you know, if it helps with the marketing, cool. And I'm, I'm, I know that it does because you get a lot of good feedback there. But for us, it was just like non-negotiable. Like this business is going to be here in part to feed us, right? Um, literally. And then in part to provide an ex- excellent service, but also because we w- we really want to give back. Like we want to make some sort of impact. If it works, if it works and it helps us market the company, that's awesome. But uh, to me, that's like the icing on the cake, so to speak. What was the second question? I forgot already. Oh, the second question was, what are some of the things, the conscious decisions you made about your branding? Like, for example, oh, yeah. um, you talked about copywriting before. And I love when you when you go onto your website, right? And when you're to gather your email addresses, it says deals on meet in your email. That's brilliant. <laughs> That's just brilliant copywriting. So how did how did that strategy as far as your branding in the fun and the surprise and the delight come into play when you are building out your brand to, to maintain and grow your customers? You know, I think that, uh, Carol, I think, uh, thank you for saying that. Um, that was really, it's really fun. Uh, I think that for me, it's like, it's so painful to try to be all corporate and formal and, uh, inhuman. Um, when, Everybody on the other side, they're all human beings, right? Last I checked, there weren't any aliens eating meat sticks. And so it's like, you know, or animals, I should say. Uh, <laughs> prob- probably not animals. Anyways, bad joke. But, but um, you know, they're just people, right? Somebody's visiting the website and there's some human being. They might have a good day. Maybe they're having a bad day. I don't know. But the best thing that I can do is just be a human being back, right? And you're coming here to get some meat, right? You want a deal? Like that, to me, like, you know, Nick will say, dude, how did you come up with this stuff sometimes? And... uh I'm like, I don't know. Like I, it's what I, it's just what I would write. Like I would write that to you, right? I would say, Hey, you want some deals and some meat in your email? I don't know. Um, and so like that, inform, that informs our copywriting, that informs our, the way that we email market, that informs um, some of these pop-ups that you're talking about, that informs like everything that we do. It's just like, I'm going to write to you like I would write to a friend. And that what's crazy about it and fun to me is that this, the people are most receptive to that. It will create the most revenue. And so it's like, wait, I can be human and have fun and create more revenue than I ever would if I wanted to just be like all stodgy and, you know, serious about stuff. Well, that sounds like a triple win to me. And so that's just the way that we operate. We were even talking about, you know, creating some really hilarious signature gifts in the office here because we're just trying to have fun. And Nick and I will, you know, we visit every month on, we visit every day on a lot of things, but once a month on financials. And one of the questions we always ask is, are we still having fun? Because if we're not having any more fun, we're, I'm done. I'm out of here, right? And he's the same way. He's like, if I'm not having any fun, I'm gone, right? So if th- this needs to continue to be fun. And the only way that that's going to happen is if we're continuing to pay attention to what's most important, right? We didn't start, and I talk about this in Slow Hustle a lot. We never, nobody's starting a business and thinking, I can't wait to work myself to death. Like this is, I cannot <laughs> wait to this business. is so successful. I'm going to work myself to death. Nobody says that, but a lot of us do it. And the only reason we do it is because we're not paying attention. It's a slippery slope. It just happens very slowly, right? You don't go from like happy to unhappy one day to the next. Not usually. It's over time. Work creeps in and life creeps out. And before you know it, you're unhappy, right? So we just got to continue to pay attention and to measure the right things. What's the biggest challenge you have in your business right now? (sighs) Uh, Too many ideas. Too many stinking ideas. Um, And it's from us and then from customers. You know, we talked about listening to reviews earlier. And the problem is, is like some people are very loud and it's only one person. And it's only one person that actually wants that thing that they keep screaming about. 
Um, and so for us, it's like we got we have to, um, and we, we're doing a really good job of it so far. I think is paying attention to what really is most important for the business, paying attention to what data is really telling us. Um, like this person saying, "Hey, I really wish you didn't have this certain ingredient." And then we look back, we're like, nobody's ever asked for that ever. You know, and we could put a poll out and there's crickets. Like nobody cares about what this person asked about, but it seemed compelling. Um, and so I think that's that's the issue for us right now. There are too many opportunities, which is awesome. Uh, I'm not complaining about it at all, um, but it's um, it's very difficult to parse out the good from the bad. And so I've noticed that over the past, if I look at your website now, you're up to uh, about 15 different items, different mm. uh um, different variations of yep. of beef snack and jerky and and that sort of thing. So why fifteen? Why why didn't why aren't you at four now? Why aren't you at forty now? What's the what's the whole process you go through to decide it's time to add another flavor or it's time to add another product versus let's slow down and not? Where where does that decision making process come from? Well, I mean, so we're um, we're very deliberate on the flavors and the variations that we put out, and so there's there's a very, you know, elaborate process in going through kind of like determining what product is going to be released next. It's actually incredibly tedious for me because I just want to like put stuff out. Um, but at the same time, there is a, a bandwidth issue, right? So it's like, we can't, we would actually probably put out more. And the, here's the reason for that. Um, back to testing quickly, failing quickly, all this, all the stuff we talked about earlier, the more products that we can put out, the more quickly I can find out find the winners and the losers, right? Um, and so if I can put out 20 and 15 of them lose, I don't really care because that means I found five winners. And so that's God, that's kind of it for us. So if it makes it through the first filter, then we put it out and then we measure. And if it's not doing well, even though I love that flavor, I'm going to kill it. And then we're going to, we're not going to support it anymore. So that's, that's been our process and it's worked for us so far. That's a great answer. So where, where do you see yourself in five years? Where's this business going to be in five years? If, uh, if things go the way you want and expect it to. It, it, it's hard to say what I, I I don't know. I mean, it's it, right now, uh, Jay. The business has grown so quickly that we never would have anticipated to even get to where we're at right now. Quite frankly, and so in five years, I it's three and a half years in to say five more years. Sure. I I have I I can't even tell you. Maybe on the moon. Okay. <laughs> it's so unfathomable at this point. <laughs> Do you see any major changes for the business? Any big new ideas, or are you just going to keep doing what's been successful the last three and a half years and just keep growing that? Yeah, I, I think that what's interesting for for me is that I think there are plenty of complementary products and complementary categories that are very very interesting, and so um, we definitely will be testing those. That's that's to be sure, and. We actually talked about this earlier today with the team is that we'll never we're never going to be stuck in one segment. And so just because of what something worked last year and it was great and we loved it, if it's not working anymore, we will not persevere. We will we will pivot and do something different. And I'm always reminded of um, uh, uh, of the the story of Virgin Media, right? And um, Richard Branson saying that it wasn't a big deal closing the stores down for him. He said it worked for a while. It was good while it lasted. And I, I, I always remember that because it's like, man, you really could look at it differently. You could say, gosh, you know, let's kind of, let's continue to innovate. Maybe we can make this work. Well, nobody's buying CDs in the store anymore. Like that's, that's dead, right? And for him, it was a very simple, probably yet difficult decision. I'm just going to close the stores down. They did really well. They're not doing well anymore. This is a one or a zero decision. Something. Time for something different. We're cutting, it, we're cutting it loose, right? And funny enough, it goes back to your earlier comment about ego. 
and uh, not yeah. having your ego wrapped up in the success or failure of your business and, and, mm-hmm. and being able to make good decisions. Yes. Yep. So one more question before we move on to the next segment. So you started your entrepreneur journey young. You were seven or eight years old. And you have four kids now who are between the ages of four and 11, I believe it is. That's right. Um, so is there anything in particular you're doing with your kids to kind of introduce them to their entrepreneur journey? And what can our listeners take away in terms of tips for how they might want to help their kids get introduced to entrepreneurship? Yeah, uh, we're a little weird. So we home, we homeschool and I work from home currently. And so the kids are intimately exposed to all aspects of the business, right? Like they come in when I'm having a meeting. If they were home right now, they'd be staring at me through the glass door. My my daughter was just in earlier and I was running through analytics with her, but she's 11. Like I want them to understand like, this is how the sausage is made, which is a funny joke, right? Coming from Mission <laughs> Meats. Um, I didn't plan that, but um, still a bad joke. But, but um, I want them to see it because it demystifies it, right? Like, I think if, if you go, and this is anything, whether business or something else, if you go from not doing to doing, it seems very daunting, right? Whether it's flipping a house or starting a business, it doesn't matter. You go from, if you're in the not doing category to going to doing, it seems like, holy crap, I, this, I don't know how the hell I'm going to get it done, right? But if I can demystify it for them and say, hey, it's not a big deal. Like, oh, you, this is how I do market analysis. And this is how we decide whether a new flavor is going to come out. And this is how I take it to market. And this is how I work with a team. And it's just, it's like, oh. Well, it's no big deal. Like anybody can do that. Like, you know, this is all dad does. He sits on the computer and cl- clicks a couple buttons and they're selling stuff. No big deal. That to me is like the biggest lesson you can give the kids. Cause otherwise, I mean, they don't know what adults are doing, right? It's like, oh, you know, mom, dad, they go to work, they come home, they take their shoes off, they complain a little bit. Money shows up in the bank account on Friday. Like, I don't know what happens there, you know? And I guess the reason I'm teaching my kids that is probably very much because that's how I grew up. I mean, I grew up literally hands and feet in the store, moving boxes around. That's what I did. And not wanting to leave. So you're just introducing that to them from when they're babies and they grow up in it and they know no different, right? So I'm so curious, your 11-year-old is so into it. Is there some stuff you're doing as early as as with your four-year-old? I mean, are there some little things you can do even when the kids are that little? Um, I had the four-year-old putting UPC codes on auto parts the other day. There you go. Right. So they, and they know like this guy that I got him from, he, this is what he did. And this is how it ended up at our house. And this is why we're doing what we're doing. And then UPS is going to pick it up and this is where it's going to go. So even at, I mean, they can be part of the process, even if it's just like putting stickers on um, to be included in that whole system. That's awesome. And it makes you even while you're running a business, it that it that makes you even that much more present as a dad and in mm. that much more full circle in keeping with the mission that you set out to from the very beginning, right? Well, and what's here's what's real funny is that I was apologizing to them. I said, you know, because they already came UPC'd and they were they had screwed them up and they weren't UPC'd properly. I'm like, sorry guys, this sucks. And the four-year-old and the seven-year-old said, No, dad, this is fun. Oh, I love it. Right. And so I'm like, oh, they're having fun. They're helping me out. This is great. You know, I'm teaching them about business. Like this is a win. Totally. All the way around, all the way around. So now, Peter, we're going to move to the part of our show that we call four more. So we're going to start with four questions that we ask all of our guests, and then we're going to jump into the more, which is where we find out more about you. Okay. You ready? Yeah. All right. Jay, take the first one. Okay. Question number one. So Peter, we know what your first job was, but what was your worst job and what were the lessons you learned from from that job? Worst is a tough one, but I will tell you uh, the weirdest and what I what I learned from it. Um, so I sold balls at Disney 
at Epcot, which is like the worst park, right? To, to families. And uh, my lesson learned there was that um, you had to engage the kids, right? So I, I had to bounce the ball to the kid and then that would draw the whole family over. Otherwise, the dad's never, or dad or mom, they're not coming over to buy this $30, you know, self-inflating ball or whatever. But here's what was interesting. I was number one in sales for all four parks for almost the whole time I was there, a couple of years. And um, people would come over and they would say, dude, I don't understand. How the heck are you selling so much, right? And I would say, oh, it's very simple. We would have an hourly goal and we had a tick sheet and it was an honor system and you would just tick down how many balls you sold, right? And there'd be all these other bonuses and stuff too. And um, I said, it's very simple. I always know where I'm at. So I want to be, let's say I want to like double, I want to double the sales. Like let's say the goal was $100 an hour. I would always say I want to double. So I would say I'm shooting for 200 an hour. And at any time of the day, you come up, say, Peter, where are you at? And I say, I'm at 183. I was constantly doing math. And the reason I did it is because you can never, like, if you don't measure it, there's no way you're going to meet it. There's no way. You're never going to meet 200. It might be a miracle, maybe on one day. You're never going to meet it. And, and I would know it's 930, park closes at 10. I'm at 189. I need to sell 12 balls in the next 15 minutes or whatever the time was I just gave you. In order to make my goal, I better hustle. And I would almost always make it. It was like magic. It's, it's, a, it's a great lesson in all aspects of business. You got to know your numbers cold and, uh, and use them to drive your, your, your success. Mm. Awesome. Very fun. Okay. My question is what is one, just one, Peter, pick one defining moment where you realize that you absolutely have this entrepreneurial itch. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's a, this is a tough question. <laughs> Okay. It would have to be when my dad allowed me to do what he called the paperwork for the previous, for the previous day's sales, which was taking all the cash from the the night before from the register or from the till. And I would have to separate the ones, the fives, the tens, you know, and then I would have to flatten them all out and I would measure them or um, um, count them and write them all down. And so I, this fixed this, actually this picture just surfaced the other day in our house. I don't know why, because we're getting ready to move and we're packing some stuff. And it's me sitting, sitting at my dad's desk, right? I like barely reached the desk and I'm like counting out the money. And I don't know that I was necessarily money hungry, but it went back to this like whole 40 cent can selling for a dollar. Yeah. I was just fascinating. It was like, oh, and I do have one other example. I should cut all that out. I got, I have one other right. example. I have one other example. Middle school, I'm selling blow pops. You guys remember what blow pops are? They were totally, like, yes. Yeah, okay. They're delicious. Right. Yes. So I sold blow pops. Um, and so my dad would get um, food with, from the wholesale house, right? Before like Costco and all these places were even around. And um, I had him pick me up a, a box of blow pops for three bucks. And I had them in a, in a gap. Remember the gap bags used to be a drawstring? Oh, yeah, the blue, okay. the drawstring. Yep. So blue drawstring, yep. Okay, so I would go to school and from the first bell to the second bell was 15 minutes. It's in middle school. And I sold through the whole bag. And I came home and I counted it. And it was 15 bucks. Wow. And I thought, I thought, oh my gosh, $3 box. I net, so I netted $12. Oh my gosh. So I go to my dad. I said, dude, I need you to buy like, you know, I don't know what it was like, seven more cases, seven more boxes, right? So he buys me seven more boxes. And every day, I ended up having one of those change counters, right? Where he had uh-huh. like, nick, you know, quarters, nickels, and dimes because I sold them for a quarter. And I would like make change for people. And every day I was selling a box. I remember coming home, I, that gap bag, no bull pops in it anymore. It's all change and dollars. And I dump them on the kitchen counter. I remember thinking, I'm rich. Like, this is amazing. You know, that is amazing. Yeah. Until I got in trouble and I got, and I couldn't sell them anymore, but it, that to <laughs> no me was soliciting. like, yeah, it was a very fi- a pivotal moment. That's awesome. I, I have this theory that when it comes to kids, 
there's this tactile response to money that that really forms a, 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 a an emotional a bond. A, a bond. It totally does. Um, I remember in the days of face painting, when I used to face paint like at little fairs and stuff, I would just I would just show up at the county fair and it's not like I got a permit. I was 12 years old, right? And I would have my little cash box. And at the end of the day, I would obsess over, I would take all the dollar bills and put them in serial number order. And my mother was like, there is something so not right with you. And I'm like, oh, you just wait and see. So there really is something tactile about it. It's amazing. And to touch on that, uh, I do the same thing with spending with the kids. And so, um, you know, whether we want to go out to eat, like if the kids want to go out to eat, I'm going to say, no problem, that's 50 bucks. And they'll say, what do you mean? I'm like, 50 bucks bare minimum for us to eat out, even at the junkiest place. And uh, they're like, really? So yeah, you want to go still? They go, no. No, not worth it. Not worth it. it. And the other thing I do with them is like, you know, if they're spending their own money, let them put it on the counter, right? And so it's like, you want to buy that? Sure. It's four quarters. Just set it on the counter right there. And they'll look at the money and they'll look at the stuff and they'll say, no, yep. I don't want to, yep. I don't like it that much. Right. They have to see it. They have to feel it parting their hands. Right. I think that's yes. part of the reason why, and it's not just kids. It's part of the reason why I think a lot of adults have issues with credit cards because it doesn't, you don't have that tactile response. It doesn't feel real. And you don't feel it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's jump into question number three. A lot of bad advice out there in the world. What's the worst advice you've been given either in your industry or business in general? Uh, and what did you do with that advice? How would you turn it around to make it good advice? <laughs> I won't say who said this because they might listen, but they said it was for an experience um, that we were getting ready to have and travel. And the person said, listen, you know, I don't think your family should do it. I think that it's, you know, you're, you're doing a disservice to your family. As soon as you run into an obstacle, just turn around and go back. Just, just abandon it, go back, forget about it. It's a, right. And I thought this is the, I, I told him, I said, this is the worst advice I've ever gotten. Right. Because it's always on the other side of some sort of obstacle on the other side of some sort of like issue that there's some gold, right. There's something there. Right. And whether it's like still going to be truly a bad experience and you're going to learn from it and you're going to let that inform your future decisions or most people stop. Right. They say, oh, this is hard. This sucks. I'm turning around. Forget it. I'm dumb. This is not something I should have ever done. And they quit. Um, but it's almost always on that other side where all the gold happens. Right. So that's my short answer. Love it. That's great. Okay. I have the fourth question. And I know you said that you're not a materialistic dude and you don't want a whole lot. You just want to be there for your kids and give back and family first, et cetera. But I'm hoping you can share that there's something you've splurged on at some point that was totally totally worth it. <laughs> um, a splurge. Let me think about this for a minute. Does it have to be a material thing? Not at all. Whatever oh. it is, you oh, interpret is, however you oh, want this it. Is, this is simple then. Uh, travel for me. And so we we spend an absurd amount of money on travel uh, because uh, and I'll give the example. So for our honeymoon, we went to Maui, which we just, we were actually just in Maui again for for a month, thanks to nice. uh, some common friends here. And so in Maui, we went and we did the downhill bike tour down Haleakala, right? Down the volcano. And you can't necessarily do this anymore. They, they too many people got hurt, but, um, and we didn't know that at the time, but um, you go up there for sunrise and you ride down your bike and you don't even pedal, right? Because it's such all these switchbacks and it's 10,000 feet and you come down through the clouds. It's amazing. And I always tell people, that trip gets better every year. 
Every year I think about it, right? We reminisce about it. We talk about it. Like, remember that time? We see some pictures, right? It just gets sweeter, right? Now, you name a purchase that will do that for you. A material good, though. There is not one. I I can't even think of one thing that I bought and it got better every year. It didn't, right? After a while, I was like, this thing sucks or it broke or whatever. I throw it away, right? And so that's why we splurge on travel because I think the kids will remember it and they'll, they'll smell it. They'll feel it, right? And, and, and they'll remember it. Yep. It's that experience that matters. It's not the thing. It's the experience. No, no judgment here whatsoever, but some people love things and, and they just want to accumulate more things and play with things. And that's great. And then there are other people that just love experiences and memories and, and that's great as well. So, um, yes, so absolutely. Okay. So let's jump into the more part of the four more. Tell us a little bit about where we can find out more about you. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, find out more about you, find out more about Mission Meets. How can they do that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So missionmeets.co, still trying to get the .com, so .co. Um, We have a very, very active Instagram. So at Mission Meets there, you can find us there. Facebook as well. We're still on there. There are still people on Facebook, believe it or not. Um, Just kidding. So we're on Facebook. And and then uh, just personally, we started a new project called The Mission Family. Um, It's very, very, very new. We're sharing some of our travel-related items, homeschooling, et cetera, um, just stuff we're learning as a family that's, you know, um, you know, lugging around four kids. So you can follow follow us on Instagram at The Mission Family. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I'm ashamed to say I've yet to try any of your Mission Meat products, and that will be rectified very soon. <laughs> but I'll also say that our, our good friend Brandon Turner is a big fan. So, uh, so yes, ho- ho- he is. Hopefully, we can get a, uh, a discount code and a URL on our show page for people that want to give Mission Meats a try. And so jump down to the show page, take a look at that URL and the discount code, and and we should have that up here. Yep, it'll be there. Free bag of bacon for you guys. Oh, that is awesome. awesome. Who doesn't love bacon? (laughs) Everything's better with bacon. Yes, it is. Peter, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. And I feel like we could probably talk for another two hours if we had the time. This has been tremendously enlightening, and, and it's great to hear your story. It's great to hear your insights. Love the slow hustle uh, motto and, and, and idea. And, uh, we wish you the best of luck with mission meets and we look forward to having you back in, uh, in, in the future so we can hear an update to the story. That was good. Jay, Carol, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Peter. See you soon. See you. Bye. Bye. Okay. That wraps it up for today's episode. And got to tell you, I just love how he has built this amazing business where he's giving back to the community, he's doing something that he loves, and he's able to work from home so his kids can be part of it as well. What do you think about it, Jay? Yeah, I agree. That was a fantastic episode. You know what I really loved? I loved the four more questions at the end. All the content that we had there, that we probably could have turned that into its own episode. I think I could have talked to him for another hour just about his four more answers. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We are Carol and Jay. Go do something brilliant today.